It depends on what you can do to deliver near-term value without compromising long-term value. So part of that is don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. What can we do now that isn't going to cut us off for what we can do later? So we're always kind of mindful of where we want to be in five years, but also mindful that we can't get there today. So we want to try to pull as much of that forward to right now as we can and be set up for where we think we want to be. Now, we're not always right about that. If you go back five years ago, the things we said we wanted to do and be have changed a little bit, but we try to make sure that everything we put in place, we can build on and we can move towards the places that we're going to go. And they're not just a band-aid for right now. It's going to hurt us later. Hey there, dental economist. If you're a dentist owner or a leader within a dental business thinking about growing production, case acceptance, patient and staff satisfaction, positive outcomes, and everything else that comes with running a dental business, then you're a dental economist and you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Dental Economist Show. We're meeting at the intersection of profit and purpose as I sit down with dental leaders who share their stories about dentistry, business, and growth. Welcome back to another episode of the Dental Economist Show. I'm your host, Mike Huffaker. On this episode, we're joined with Ben Walling, the Senior Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Sage Dental. Ben has over 20 years experience helping organizations transform through innovation. Ben has an incredible background covering software development, information technology, and product management. Ben, welcome to our podcast. Good to be here. I listened to the first few episodes that are out already. I'm pretty excited to be on. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. So let's just dive into talking about technology. How do you choose what technologies matter? It depends on what you can do to deliver near-term value without compromising long-term value, right? So part of that is don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. What can we do now that isn't going to cut us off for what we can do later? So we're always kind of mindful of where we want to be in five years, but also mindful that we can't get there today. So we want to try to pull as much of that forward to right now as we can and be set up for where we think we want to be. Now, we're not always right about that. I mean, if you go back five years ago, the things we said we wanted to do and, and be have changed a little bit, but we try to make sure that you know everything we put in place, we can build on and we can move towards the places that we're going to go. And they're not just a band-aid for right now that are that's going to hurt us later. Now, you have a standardized technology stack across all of the practices in your organization. Is that accurate? Almost all of them. So, you know, we grow through both de novo and acquisition. So the acquisition practices have a period of time where they're in our ecosystem, but they're not fully on board our primary practice management system and other tools. Now, that said, we have a management layer on top of the practice management system. So they get the majority of the benefits with us day one. Eventually, we'll bring them onto our practice management system and get the remainder of those benefits. But probably 90 to 95% of what we do is practice management system agnostic. And so why do you believe that that is important in driving value for the organization? And you just talked about benefits. What are some of the benefits that the individual practices themselves receive from that approach? So we want not just the staff, but the patients to have the same experience wherever they go. So they walk into an office that we recently acquired. We still want them to get the Sage Dental experience. We want the staff to experience the same thing. It helps with being able to staff better when you can move your staff between offices and their procedures, policies, everything they use is the same. 
we do that with specialty because we offer every single specialty within our practices, but they're not all in the same office the same day. So our specialty staff tend to travel, but their experience in every single office is the same. The software footprint's the same. Their management of patients and everything they do is the same everywhere. And that's true regardless of what practice management system they're on. They'll have to do the charting in that particular practice management system, but everything else patient-facing, we've kind of taken that out of there to make sure that everything we want done can happen the same way everywhere. Yeah. So let's say you're starting a new group or you move into a position where there's already existing practices. What, from your perspective, are the essential pieces of software to help that organization, you know, hit the ground running or accelerate growth. What's in the tech stack these days? I think it's become pretty basic to have, you know, your patient engagement, appointment reminders, confirmations, some form of patient self-scheduling. You know, the days of expecting patients to call in or you to call the patient is they're over. People don't answer the phone. You need to be able to do that over text message. Preferably the patient can schedule themselves. But I think you've got to manage that patient experience first and get those things in place because Acquiring and retaining patients is very, very important. And then secondarily, you've got to make the staff experience the right one. You're asking the staff to see a lot of patients to provide high quality experience to the patient. And if you bury them in the computer, they can't provide a good experience because they're head down, staring at the keyboard, keying some stuff in, the patient's in front of them feeling like they're not being attended to. And when you talk about the, the ability to self-schedule, how do you get the buy-in from the organization? I'm assuming, is this something that you do at Sage if I'm a patient? We do it at Sage. There's been resistance to that, I think, over time. COVID was a little bit of a breakthrough for us in that regard because the state of Florida shut down for several weeks. We were fortunate in that we were able to acquire PPE and we were able to reopen a lot sooner than others. So we had a small window of time in which we were trying to reschedule several weeks for the patients as quickly as possible. And that was uh, probably the primary breakthrough for moving a lot of that to text messaging and patient direct scheduling because the that one moment of extreme volume kind of forced us to. But as soon as we realized how well it worked, we stuck with it ever since. And it's a, a significant part of how we schedule patients. We try to give them the freedom to move or change their appointments. And they can do that from their own device without having to actually get in contact with us. Because if a patient can't make their appointment and needs a different time, you want to know that. You don't want that patient still sitting in that slot on that schedule and then not showing up because, you know, they left the office a couple of voicemails. The office left them a couple of voicemails and nobody ever connected. All right. Another outcome from COVID, if we're talking about new technologies being adopted or accelerated, was teledentistry. And I still see a lot of application when it comes to ortho and remote monitoring and doing appointments in that manner. Where do you see the application of benefit in general dentistry? And is it still something that is a focus for you and your organization? Yeah, I think it, I mean, as you mentioned, it has a lot of benefits in ortho. You know, we do a lot of remote monitoring of those patients. You know, it minimizes the number of times that they have to take their kid out of school and and show up in the practice. But on, on the general dentistry side, after hours, weekend care, emergency type situations, your kid was playing soccer and got kicked in the mouth, something like that. The ability to jump online and do that through a teledentistry situation, it gives you the better opportunity to evaluate that patient and figure out, hey, do we need to have you come into the office now? Do we need to meet you there? Or should we set you up to come in on Monday? Because it'll be fine until Monday. I think there are benefits to doing it with ongoing care, but I think primarily the urgent type situation, weekend and after hours, gives us a better experience than 
putting a patient into a call center who's going to take a message, call the dentist, the dentist is going to call back, you know, we can get them a better experience faster. So a, a common refrain in dental as it relates to technology is that dental's behind. And a few years back, you, you uh, co-wrote an article where you kind of challenged that notion that dental is so far behind the medical world. Do you still feel that way? Uh, I think it was back in 2021. And if there are still areas from a technology perspective, dental lags, what are those areas and, and do you see solutions on the horizon? So I think we're ahead in some areas and we're behind in some others. I think we're ahead in areas that we control. I think we've moved quicker towards self-scheduling, towards text messaging and things like that than the medical side has because they're a little bit bigger. They're a little bit slower. You know, we have AI in dental imaging. It's a lot more accessible than what you see on the medical side in some cases. But I think where we're behind really is in the electronic relationships with the payers. And I think that's partly because from a payer standpoint, if you take Aetna, Cigna, so on, that also have a medical side. The medical side is such a much bigger part of their business that they don't really pay as much attention on the dental side. But I think you see practices struggling with getting the right information out of payers, getting the right information to payers. And that entire relationship is pretty far behind. And, and it's a very important relationship. So people feel that. And I think that's what probably drives the majority of, hey, dental still so far behind because you can go into a medical practice and they can put some things in the computer and they can get you a number immediately. And on the dental side, we're estimating that number because we don't have that technology. We don't have those, those connections that exist on the medical side. I think that's a great call out. I'm curious, you know, you've got a unique experience with practice management software. And obviously we provide a cloud solution at Planet DDS called Denicon. Sage is currently using an on-premise solution, Dentrix Enterprise. As you kind of look at the landscape of practice management, you made a comment. First time I met you was at the RCM bootcamp that Zentist put on. And I think you've said something about practice management's basically like the devil and we're, we don't do really great work. And I know that there's opportunities there. Where do you think that like the software for practice management falls short today? I think both, you know, in terms of the patient experience and the staff experience, right? I think what has happened to this point and the practice management system on the dental side, you know, originated in the supply companies in Shine and Patterson because they were trying to kind of capitalize on that existing relationship they had with the dental practices. And they're not exactly, at least at the time, they weren't innovating. They were just building what was necessary. There's a clinical chart here. There's a schedule here. There's a billing system here. There are the, the components necessary to operate a practice. But nothing in that process really said, how should these things behave? What is the right way to manage these things and to do these things? And you saw over time, the patient engagement companies and the other companies came in and said, well, we can plug into these things and we can give you these other tools that you don't have, but they were still an add-on. So then when you look at, well, I've got patient engagement here, I've got online forms here, I've got reputation management here, and now I've got clinical application open, I've got five browser tabs open trying to manage my workflow. I think we're now at a point where it's important to come back and say, okay, how should these things behave? And what's the right way from the staff experience, from the patient experience to build these in a way that, yes, you can do all of the important things of operating the practice. You can make sure that your clinical charts are correct, your billing is correct and all that, but you're freed up to provide the right experience and you're freed up to do the things that matter. The things that matter aren't usually sitting in front of a keyboard and a mouse. 
So I think that's where it has to start moving. And I think that's where it will start moving because those other companies kind of started taking some of the revenue. And now the practitioner companies are going, okay, well, we've got to get better because we don't do these things. And somebody else is coming in and saying, well, they're important. Kind of fascinating for me coming from another industry. I used to sell point of sale solutions and restaurant and hospitality. And it was all about the tech and all about the software. I never had to compete with quotes that said, hey, we'll give you free eggs for the next 12 months if you buy our software. And it's a little bit different in dental. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of companies doing a lot of innovative things. I'm fascinated by Shine and the position that it's in today with on-premise software, the rise of their cloud product, and then introduction of APIs. It does seem that there's a more significant focus now across the space, cloud as well, with other providers like CareStack, and we're in process of also releasing our own API, where at least people are waking up to the fact that there needs to be a level of interoperability and ability to engage with the practice management data in ways that maybe are not even considered yet, as opposed to creating more closed environments and believing that they can do everything themselves. Is that something that you've also seen? And do you feel like that's an important element to what needs to be available for software as we move forward? I think they're definitely getting a lot more open about that. If you look back 10 or 15 years, the databases were relatively closed up. You know, you had to get permission from them to even get anything in or out of it because originally I think they saw it as mitigating support costs, right? If I let people go in the database and do things, well, they could break something and now I have to spend time and money trying to fix that for the customer. And they're really mad at me, even though they maybe caused that problem. So they didn't initially want to do that. But I think you've seen the cloud services, the everything is moving to the cloud. Everything's moving to kind of a, an API-driven model where anything can operate with anything else, right? You know, you can, you can get a wide variety of services on the internet to interact with a wide variety of other services. And so I think they're, they're kind of seeing that that model works. And that they are planning to move to that model. Some of them, you know, intend to monetize it, right? You know, the APIs are priced and, and metered. So on one hand, it's a revenue opportunity for them. But on the other hand, it's where everything is going. And if they don't do it, then someone else will do it and they'll be out. What is important to you when you're choosing a vendor? Is it the initial process? Is it credibility that that vendor has within the marketplace? Is it, is it solving the problems that I'm looking for? Is it the people that are working within the organization? Tell me a little bit about how you engage with your vendors and where you place your value on those engagements. So I think we're pretty selective in that regard. You know, we're, we're going to prove out that what you're claiming actually happens, whether we see that in place at other customers or whether we have an extended period internally where we really push and pull on what you're saying your product does. Do you mean to say that some software vendors sell vaporware occasionally or over-promise what is actually available? Overpromise is probably a, the, the right term. If your initial reach out is, is promising things that are just ludicrous, we're, we're already skeptical and you're not in the right position there. But I think going back to something I said earlier about the way we present our application layer to the offices and the patients, one of the main things we're looking for out of vendors is that we're able to interact with your stuff through APIs and we're able to integrate it into our processes. In a lot of cases, our staff don't even know whose systems they're using. 
we have a platform that will estimate a treatment plan fairly accurately, more accurately than the practice management systems do. And there are six or seven different software vendors data and components that feed into that, but the practice doesn't have any awareness of any of that. They just have a single screen where they say, okay, I need an estimate for this treatment plan and they get one. And they don't know where that's coming from. They don't know all of the services that went into it. And that's part of the important thing for us is to say, we don't want to give them another browser tab to have open another thing to go check. We want to take your service and we want to put it correctly in the workflow where it belongs. That's a huge component for us is, yes, it's a valuable thing to have, but we need to be able to put it in the process where it belongs and how we want it in there. Yes, that's fantastic. Is that something you guys built in-house? Yeah, we've built quite a lot in-house to try to pull all the pieces together and provide a, a consistent experience. And, you know, even if we do end up changing vendors over time, the folks in the practice may or may not even know we've changed the vendor. Uh, their exposure to it doesn't change. How do you think groups that are smaller can replicate some of that ability or functionality? Or is it really just a gap right now where unless you have additional resources and incredibly smart people that are working on the team to solve some of these problems in an almost proprietary way, that they just aren't going to be solved. I think the tools to do that are getting democratized, right? You know, when I started doing this 20 years ago, you wrote a lot of code, you built a lot of things in-house, and now, you know, you're probably on Google's cloud platform or you're on Office 365 and, and you've got Power Automate and you've got other tools where, you know, you can start to build these things without needing to write a lot of code, without needing to run your own server, data center, infrastructure. You can start to do those things and you see more and more people starting to use those tools to say, okay, I can start to make this better. I can't necessarily pull it all into a cohesive interface, but I can make these things talk to each other in ways that limit the amount of time my staff has to duplicate work or do unnecessary work that the system should do for them. But the other thing I would tell them, and, you know, I recognize you're a practice management vendor, but I would say, you know, they need to push for these things to, to be this way and to not need to build these things, right? It doesn't make sense for DSOs all over the country to have a development staff fixing and gluing things together in the way that they should be. And that's where we said earlier in the conversation, I think the practice management vendors are starting to move in that direction. You'll start to see less and less need to be doing that on your own because, you know, these solutions are necessary. That's why the larger DSOs build them. But as the market rolls up and consolidates and DSOs are a bigger share, you'll see the software vendors accommodate that a lot more. Let's talk about AI for a second. I know you guys do a lot of work with Perl currently, and just imaging AI has been a, a huge focus within the industry over the past year or so. But it goes beyond just the capability of presenting diagnostic assistance with x-rays that are taken. Uh, how do you think about AI and the capabilities that it will offer, maybe what it's offering today and what you would hope it will be able to solve for in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think you see the imaging right now. It's the most obvious application, but that has diagnostic benefit and it has benefit to the patient, right? The dentist is proposing some treatment to you that otherwise seems expensive. The AI gives some ability to better explain, hey, here's what's going on and here's why, and here's an easier way to see it. So the patient gets better comfort with the fact that they're not just getting sold something relatively expensive, they're getting the treatment that they need. We use Pearl and the AI stuff in that insurance estimation piece that I, I mentioned earlier and that you know we pull back what's actually on the x-rays and we compare that against the carrier's clinical requirements. 
I think RCM is an area you're going to see a lot more AI because lacking those real true data connections to the payers, you're having to take all of the data that you have available and try to assimilate it as best you can, which is what people have been doing for decades. They're saying, well, you know, I remember every time I filed one of these claims with, you know, payer X, this happens and they learn from that. The computers can learn from that a lot faster. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the RCM space because there's a lot of value to be generated from it. And there's a lot of data to feed the models to get there. Yeah, I think a technology that we've seen really rise to prevalence over the past few years, which I think some people confuse with AI, though I'd be interested in your perspective on it, is RPA and a lot of robotic process automation that is kind of being masqueraded or marketed as an AI functionality. When I think of AI, I think of it much more as like a machine learning mechanism that runs across a variety of models that can provide answers based off of huge data sets. And how do you think about that? I tend to think of it the same way, that AI should have some aspect of machine learning, statistical inference, the computer making a prediction or an observation that, that wasn't already there. And we've, we've taken the term AI and we've used it for a wide variety of things. You see it used in dental under RPA, which if people don't know what RPA is, it's essentially just scripting the user interface of something, right? If you can't get access to Aetna's database, RPA will sit there and say, well, I'll write a script that'll log into Aetna's website and navigate to this patient's page and scrape all the data out of. You see it also, I think some of the voice perio companies have started rebranding themselves as AI when, you know, we've had voice perio since the early 2000s. It's just voice recognition entering a number in a chart. So I think RPA, yeah, it's, it's misleading a little bit to call it AI. And I think the thing with RPA, I don't think it's a, a long-term solution for anything. It's a band-aid. Every time an insurance company's website changes or you upgrade software or whatever, all of your RPA breaks and you have to rebuild it. So you put yourself on a treadmill that you can never really get off of. But, you know, we need to start building those data connections, the APIs and the practice management system, the APIs to payers and things like that to take that sort of crude implement out of the picture and get towards what the right long-term solution looks like. I think RPA has been a, a means to an end as a result of a deficiency in having those APIs available in order to solve problems in, a, in, a, in another way, in many cases. But it can also, for sure, cause some instability in software. And it's like, you know, depending on who's writing the scripts and how they act and operate, they don't necessarily benefit the end user in an efficiency manner. So. And they're not inexpensive either, right? The ability to use an API, an API call and a response is very inexpensive in terms of compute and overhead. You know, you can run a lot of them in a short amount of time with very little expense. RPA, there's a lot more compute necessary to make that happen. The cost of it are much higher and it's much harder to scale because of it. So if you wanted to do a very high volume of RPA, you're going to need a large amount of cloud services or a large number of computers in your data center to make those things happen. So it's it's not a good long-term scalable solution where you know the API direction, admittedly, it's slower, right? We've been hoping the payers would produce APIs for 20 years now. Do you see that changing? There is some openness when you talk with them about that. They are aware that dentists are calling in at high volume. Them running a call center is not cheap for them. Them expecting, I think for a long time they thought, hey, well, we put out a website, so now everybody can just use that. But I think the providers have done a good job of kind of conveying, look, I deal with 20 different payers. I can't log into 20 different websites to do 20 different things, 20 different ways. 
right? I need this to come through APIs, to clearinghouses somewhere. I need this to happen in a way that I can get back to patient care and not be on hold with you for two hours. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely something to keep an eye on. I'm curious as to your views on growth. So Sage has had remarkable success and really incredible growth. And in just last year, I think there was some post on LinkedIn or something where I got this from, and there was an announcement that Sage would be opening 27 practices or opened 27 practices through the summer. And that the post was in October. Can you walk us through how you prepare for that type of growth with your team? And is it ever possible to grow too fast? Sure. I mean, it's definitely possible to grow too fast. And, you know, I think a lot of the management team at Sage has been in experiences in the past where they, they grew too fast. But we put a lot of effort into making sure that we had the right processes in place, both just workflows as well as software systems and things like that to minimize the overhead on staff for doing various tasks, both in the dental centers as well as in the, the support center. So, as we grow, we don't have to grow staff linearly with that at the support center because the incremental cost of another office isn't as high as it otherwise would have been. But then the practices that happen in the office are easier. They're more likely that you're going to intuitively understand what needs to happen. You're going to do the right thing more often because the software is going to put you in those positions. So then that minimizes the amount of training overhead and implementation that you've got to go through. If you open a de novo practice, it's obviously a lot easier. Um, you're starting from kind of a blank slate. Obviously, you're hiring in staff that have worked elsewhere. But when you do an acquisition, you've got to understand that acquisition first and say, what works for you? What brought value? You know, we obviously bought you because we thought you brought a lot of value to the table. We want to understand that before we start moving you towards our processes because we don't want to erase that value by saying, okay, well, now you're going to do it the sage way. So we spend a fair amount of time on the acquisitions, understanding them first, and then figuring out, okay, what's the right way to start moving them piece by piece over to the way we do things without taking away what made them valuable in the first place. Yeah, you have a, a really interesting background. Are you a coder? I do still code less than I have in the past, but I, I still do still do code on a regular basis. So when you think of the role that you fill today and the experiences that you have, across these different categories of engineering and development, product, and IT, do you weigh any of that higher or more significant in your ability to succeed than the other, or do you find them all kind of equal? I think what maybe makes me excel or do well is the product side, right? It's not necessarily writing the best code. It's understanding what should be happening. And I'm sure, you know, as a practice management vendor, you guys have had conversations with practices telling you, hey, we need this because of this. And they're not always telling you the right thing, right? And so spending a little bit of time figuring out what is it that really needs to be happening here? What's the right solution here? Not just for this problem, but for how it fits into the rest of it. So I, I think that's where I've had the most success is in understanding where are we headed and how does this fit in and how do we get there with this? And not just, okay, well, let's do this thing and, and move to the next thing. Because in the end, it's all got to fit together. You're asking the staff in a dental practice to do a very large number of things at a pretty high volume. You know, when you think about all the different steps in the life cycle of a patient and then how many patients they see in a day, and then they're doing this every day, you've got to make sure that that whole thing fits and that whole workflow makes sense. It's easy. 
it happens in the context of what they're already doing so that they're not just buried in extra work. So I think that's been probably the most important piece in my career and experiences is getting that part right or as right as I can. I've learned from a lot of mistakes over the years. Yeah, it's, a, it's a interesting because it is really the interpretation of a desired outcome that somebody wants and, and figuring out how you get there. And likely the way that it's explained as to what somebody needs is very different from how it should actually look to work for what that desired outcome is. It is. And, you know, I think we all have this blind spot, I think, where we get irritated by something in our current workflow or what we're doing, and we want to solve that one thing. And we don't always, it's hard when you're buried and you're deep in it to step back a second and go, why is this even happening? Why do I have this problem? And that might be much earlier in the process that's leading to, okay, this problem's happening here because three steps back, I'm doing this other thing that causes it. It's hard to kind of get out of your own workflow and see that it's easier when you're not in that workflow. One thing I've always done that I think is somewhat unique is that when we hire on developers, people that are going to work on the software, we actually have them go work in the dental office at the front desk for a week just to get a feel for, yeah, you understand what it means to get an insurance verification. You know, we all can kind of figure out what that means, but go experience it in the context of the dental office in terms of, you know, you've got the phone ringing, you've got patients coming up to the desk, you've got people coming out of the back to ask you questions. You're on hold with an insurance company for going on two hours. Get a real feel for what all of that is like so that you understand when you're building something, where it's fitting it and the people that are going to use it, what their world is actually like, not what you imagine it might be like. How do the engineers respond to that request? What's the response? They never want to go do it. And they always come back really surprised by the experience of it. They're always like, oh my gosh, like, that's why you went and did it. Because sitting in this office all day, you don't really know what their experience is. You just sit there and go, well, it's easy to use the software. What's the problem? Well, the problem is it doesn't fit into the actual environment of the practice. I like that a lot. I think it's a, a really big gap in a lot of product development and within software companies. Actually, I just finished reading the Elon Musk book that came out recently, the same guy that did this, the Steve Jobs biography. And, and he talks about in that Musk is pretty adamant about keeping his engineers very close to the production lines, where when somebody is trying to build something or do something, if they start screaming or yelling, going, this thing doesn't work, Why, who designed this thing? This is terrible. They actually have the ability to enact change quicker and have more empathy with what that experience looks like for the folks that are having to use the product that they build. Empathy is enormously important in building the right software and processes. Understanding what your goals are are important, sure, but understanding the context in which they're actually being executed. You know, when you roll out new features, new components, you know, spend some time in, in the pilot practices and actually sit with them and watch them use it. They'll do things you didn't expect. They'll skip things you didn't expect them to skip. And, you know, it gives you a much higher rate of communication than you would get over, hey, let's jump on Teams or WebEx and let's talk about it. They probably aren't communicating but 10% of what's actually happening. And you see the rest of that when you're, when you're present. That's interesting. It's a great approach. I'm curious, what newsletters do you subscribe to? It could be dental-related, technology-related, or anything else. So my wife makes fun of me because I ruthlessly unsubscribe from emails. So I, I think the answer is actually none. 
I have one print magazine that I get every week and that's about the extent of it. I'm a big proponent of, you You know, in, in software and in creating things, you need time to focus and the perpetual stream of chat messages and emails and things like that are, are pretty disruptive to that. So I try to minimize the unnecessary ones pretty heavily. So it actually brings up an interesting question. How do you go about your day or how do you structure your day? Because there are obviously distractions all around us all the time. Sounds like you have a pretty uh, strong belief in the need to do deep work and to have that solid block of ability to think, which I think many of us try to chase often and have a hard time ever catching. What does it look like for you? So there are a couple of ways that I tackle that. Every week, there's several long blocks on my Outlook calendar that are just blocked out. That's me saying, look, in this three or four hour block, I'm not going to take calls. I'm not going to, because I need to sit down and, and, and get to work. If I have four or five calls scheduled during the day and they're spaced out just right, it's hard to get back into the groove after you just got off a call. There's a pretty long period and there's a lot of science behind you know, the amount of time it takes you to get that focus back and to get back into that flow when it's disrupted. So I block out large chunks on the calendar every week for that. But I also, I get up earlier than most other people are coming online and working so that every day I've got a couple hours before most people are likely to really start interrupting. As much as I'd like to sort of, you know, get into a enclosed area and, and not have any interruptions for most of the week. I mean, it's not practical, right? You have to interact with the rest of the team and, and the rest of the organization and people have needs that they need to address. But I do try to make sure that I've got time carved out for that sort of thing because it's easy for your week to just get away from you from interruptions or unexpected things. You know, somebody, hey, I, you know, is there any way we can do this today? And okay, let me, I can accommodate that. But then I get to Friday and I'm like, man, I didn't do any of the things I intended to do. So I make sure that there's explicit time on the calendar that you can essentially tell Outlook this is focused time and it'll turn off the, the notifications and that sort of thing. Yeah, I like that the, the first couple hours in the morning are so precious. I, I feel the same way where it's like, oh man, I can get things done. Nobody's around. And I feel like, I don't know if this is a thing, but sometimes I have this where I feel like it's almost like FOMO, like I'm missing out on something else is happening. And I know that when I'm in the early hours of the morning, nothing else is happening. So like, I don't even have to think. It allows me to clear my mind. There is always that thing in the back of your mind about, okay, I've had Outlook off for a while. Is something going on? And you have none of that in the morning. I became a morning person probably in my early 20s. And even when I was commuting and in the office, I was usually in the office before 7 a.m. because you had at least a couple of hours until 9 a.m. before you really were going to get disrupted. So you could get in and, and get a pretty good amount of work done before anything else was going on and you didn't have to worry that you were missing something that somebody was going to come interrupt you it's a valuable time of the day for me now you have experience working in a software company you have experience working at dso's how do you compare and contrast is there much of a difference are there things that present a different challenge working in product management and software versus running a technology organization within a dso yeah, I think there's two fundamental differences. In the software world, you are providing software to a variety of different customers who do things different ways, right? Some of those are valid different ways to do things, and some of them are customers kind of shooting themselves in the foot with bad process and then complaining that, hey, you know, your software should accommodate this bad habit of mine. So you don't have as much control over how they use it. You try to build for the broadest set of people, which in some cases can be a little bit limiting, right? Because you could do something 
really incredible if you had a little bit more influence over how people did things. On the DSO side, right, you have a lot of influence over how people do things because you set policies and procedures and say, we're going to standardize and this is how we're going to do things. And that simplifies a lot of what you build from a software perspective. But you're also likely to have less resources on that side, right? We don't have any anywhere near as many developers as you probably do because we're building things that bring value, but we're not building things that generate revenue. So, you know, you end up with those two trade-offs, right? You can really build the right thing in a DSO because you can really focus on it and you can say, this is how we're going to do it. On the other side, you know, in the software world, you can build a lot more. That's a, a really great observation. And a perpetual challenge is, is exactly what you said. The existing workflows within an organization and the inflexibility of being open-minded to pursue a different way of going about things that aligns with how the software allows you to do it and has been designed to function well. So I feel that. I know exactly what you're talking about there. Changing habits is incredibly hard. Nobody wants to change their habits, both because it's psychologically difficult to do, but also because you have an affinity for the way that you do things, right? You believe the way you do things is the right way. It's the best way. And somebody tries to say, hey, here's a different way to do things. One, your brain rejects it because it likes its old habits. And two, your ego kind of rejects it a little bit too, because you're saying, no, my way works. So it, changing habits is a, is a very difficult thing, but it's, it's an important thing because I'm not doing everything the right way. Nobody's doing everything the right way. So there's, there's improvement opportunity in changing, but changing habits is very hard. I mean, you have more control in the role in the organization on the DSO side, but you still have to manage that, right? I mean, you're working through changing the habits of practices that have been acquired or affiliated with your organization. How do you go about gaining buy-in and communicating the importance of changing in a different way? And what's the right approach there? So a lot of that buy-in occurs before we acquire them. We spend a fair amount of time figuring out, do we want to require this practice? And does this practice really want to be part of SAGE? Because we might want to require a practice, but the doctor there, the staff there may say, we don't want to, to operate in that way. And so that's not a good choice for us. Because if we bought them, you know, the doctor and the staff are all going to turn over when we try to say, okay, here's the way we do things. So we, we try to look for people that are aligned with how we do things on the front end. But then, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we spend a fair amount of time understanding what makes them work well before we start to try to change it, right? Because we believe in our processes, we believe our processes are good, but we're open to the idea that maybe you're doing something that's better, or maybe you're doing something that works really well in your environment, and we don't want to take that part out. So we can start to bring in the other processes that we have, the other you know, automation improvements, tools that we have, but we can also accommodate, hey, this is how you do this here because it works really well for you. And we don't want to take that away. So I don't want to say 100% uniform, but we have clinical standards, we have operational standards, we have processes that we implement everywhere, but we also allow for what works in this environment. Yeah, kind of circle back to a comment you made just a few minutes ago related to the development schedule and the fact that when you're building things, you're building to add value versus increase revenue. So when you release something or come out with something new, how do you measure the success of that? You know, you can't just assign a revenue target to it and say like, hey, this new product added an extra, you know, million dollars of ARR to our top line. What does that mean to you as you look to determine whether or not you built the right thing? 
So, I mean, an easy thing to measure is, is utilization, right? We can track whether, are you using the thing that we put out there? And when people aren't using it, you can kind of talk to, hey, why are you not using these things? And some of it's just, they didn't change their habits. Some of it is valid feedback. Hey, I tried to do these things and it doesn't work with us the way we do it. A lot of what we implement is got some metric tied to it. When we build that process to estimate insurance, we can look on the back end and say, okay, well, we estimated this for this claim. What got paid? What did we miss? And you can quantify, are we improving that number over time and where are the gaps there and how do we narrow those gaps? RCM, you can measure the effect on collections. You can measure the effect on hours saved. As we grow over the last year, we've nearly doubled in, in the number of offices in three years, and our RCM staff isn't any bigger. So you can look at metrics and say, hey, these tools and things that we're putting in place are having cost savings. They are having an effect on actual outcomes that affect patients. You know, you want to estimate their insurance correctly because they think you can. And they expect you to. You can make sure that we're collecting appropriately in those things. So there are things to measure on that side. They're not always obvious and direct, but we do try to ensure that where we're spending time and money is returning value that we expect. That's fascinating about your RCM staff staying the same size through all of that growth. I think it really speaks to a pursuit of efficiency in your processes and what you look to implement. A lot of that has been in the pursuit of getting it right for the patient. I think if you look at the processes in RCM and where you spend time and money or where as a practice you lose money, really that estimation is the most key pivotal moment. I know you told a patient it was an estimate and it might change, but the patient heard an amount and that set an expectation, right? I was willing to pay you this much money. I'm not willing to pay you, you know, the additional amount the insurance didn't pay. So you know, getting that piece right not only gets your collections improved and your patients more satisfied, but it reduces all the downstream work that you're doing in RCM. So I think that's been probably one of our bigger pieces that's been the most important. And it has indirect benefits as well. If we look at the patients for whom we sent a balance bill statement, you know, their insurance paid less and we sent them a statement, they're less likely to return. Right. But you don't necessarily think about you think about the collections aspect of it. But, you know, in terms of patient retention, if you balance bill somebody, they're much less likely to come back because you broke that trust relationship you had with them that, you know, you told them this is how much it's going to be and you were wrong. The patient doesn't understand. It's actually really hard to get that right. They just think you are going to get it right because you obviously know how their insurance works. It's a great point. Just happened to me a few months back after getting a crown and getting that second bill after already writing a big check was like, hey, I thought I was like paid in full. What is this? So definitely can leave a bad taste in your mouth and it's not a great experience. A couple final questions and then we'll wrap here. So no newsletters, but where do you go to learn? And I imagine you're always perpetually curious. What are the avenues that you take in order to stay current and understand what's happening in the space? So I think over time, I've built a pretty good network and I have several group texts that really are pretty helpful to me. People that I trust, people that I respect that and when we come across things, we share them that way. It allows me to kind of dial back the noise and focus on the signal because I know these people well. I trust what they think. If they're reading about something and they're impressed with it, it's worth looking at. But I think secondarily, I spend a lot of time with podcasts. I try to get out and walk a number of times during the day. I think it helps getting up and moving around. You know, I work from home, so you can kind of get into the habit of 
I get out of bed and I get in the office chair and get the blood flowing. So, you know, I, I go for a walk a lot throughout the day. And, you know, sometimes I just kind of determine the length of the walk by the length of the podcast episode and go, okay, well, I can kind of do these two things at once and get the blood flowing again and get some information coming in. And I think the longer form of a podcast episode is, is a little bit more suitable to the internet has turned into, hey, do these things to get somebody to click on this. But then so much of that is really short form. It's uninformative. It's not that interesting. So, you know, I prefer longer form content. Any particular podcast you're a fan of? I bounce around quite a bit. Lately, I've listened to a lot of different podcasts on AI to try to get a lot more perspective on where those things are headed and you know what people really think they can do with them because there's been such a, an overwhelming influx of AI solutions recently and trying to make sure that it, you look at that and go, okay, where does this really fit? Where is this going to go? And what should we expect from it? GPT hit the market and everybody said, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then pretty quickly going, man, this thing just hallucinates like crazy. And how do I use it? What do I do with this? Right. And then, you know, in healthcare, you then have to look at, okay, well, how do I mitigate risk with it? Right. I can't feed it my patient data because they're not set up for that. I can't really put it in situations where its hallucinations are going to adversely affect the patients. So trying to see what's out there that we can start to look at and use and make sure we understand that three to five year horizon of where we want to move to and not just what are the things we want to get done in the next three to six months. Yeah. It's funny. I used to listen to specific podcasts almost religiously. And then over the past six months or so, I've started to search more on topics that I'm interested in and started to listen to kind of a broader assortment that's more subject matter driven versus, hey, this is this particular individual that I just find interesting in, in their hosting. So also a big fan of the walking and the podcasting. Do that pretty much daily as well. I think it's super important to get out of the office for a bit. All right, last question. What's the biggest focus you have professionally as you're entering 2024? Like if one thing goes right or you accomplish one thing, what do you want that to be? I think there are still some gaps in, we've had a lot of success in the RCM space. I still think there's a couple of things we can really, really get exactly right there, especially from a patient-focused standpoint. Years back, and this is probably 10 years ago, you may or may not have seen this because I don't know if you were in Dunnell at this point in time, but Aspen actually came out and guaranteed that your estimate would be right. Otherwise, they would eat the difference. And I thought from a marketing perspective, that's really powerful. But from a patient perspective, that's the expectation. They have that expectation and we struggle to meet it. And I actually think that we can close that gap and we can get there. We can get to the point where we can say, we're right about this. And if we're wrong, we'll own that. We'll absorb that. We won't balance bill you because we've solved this problem. I get enough medical bills on my own. I hate the fact that you're just sort of in limbo for six to 12 months with medical bills sometimes going, are they done yet? Am I going to get another one? How many more are coming? So I think to some extent, you know, we owe it to the patients to say, look, we know this is a problem and we can fix this problem. We've gotten really close, but I really want to close that gap. That's a, an awesome goal to have. I'm curious, do you know what the outcome was of the initiative with Aspen? They pulled it back. It wasn't there very long. I talked to their VP of RCM over time about it. And, you know, I think he, he and I share similar goals on that, but the struggle is still there. We've closed a lot of it over the years, but there's that last bit that I think we can finally finish the rest of that. And I've been building this prior to Sage, at Sage. It's, it's evolved a lot over time, and I'd really like to see this get to an extraordinary level of accuracy because I think it's one of the biggest friction points with patients. 
Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate the time. This has been a lot of fun and I have learned a ton during this conversation. So thank you. It's been great. Thank you for having me. The Dental Economist Show is brought to you by Planet DDS. To find out more about how cloud-based dental software by Planet DDS helps unleash dentists and their staff to focus on patient care, visit www.planetdds.com. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes by following wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.